Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Past, Present, Future. Today's episode is the first in our new series of the History of Ideas. And for this series, I'm going to be talking about the great political fictions, novels and plays, about politics, but about a lot else as well. I'm starting with Shakespeare and Coriolanus. Past, Present, Future is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, where you can read some amazing writing about politics and writing about writers, including some great writing about Shakespeare. To subscribe, just go to lrb.me slash ppf. You'll get a special rate at lrb.me slash ppf. On the previous series of History of Ideas, when I was talking about works of political philosophy or the most recent one, Great Political Essays, I was basically talking about arguments and trying to make sense of arguments. And the way I tried to do that was to find the story in the argument or behind the argument. With the essays, it was to turn them into a sort of journey or adventure so that you could see the twists and turns along the way. You could see the author trying to work out what happens next. But I can't do that with this series because these literally are stories. I'm going to be talking about great novels, great plays, fictions, made-up stories. And there is always a temptation, I think, with works of political fiction, novels about politics, plays about politics, to try to find the argument behind the story, to assume that the author must be trying to make a point, trying to smuggle in a manifesto commitment, trying to take a side, and that in these novels, if you look hard enough, you can find out what the author really thinks, the argument behind the story. And I'm going to try and resist that temptation because I think usually it's wrong. These aren't arguments. They are stories. And to paraphrase Susan Sontag, there is a danger of overinterpreting them, of looking too much for the meaning, when really the meaning, the arguments are there to serve the form. Yes, all of the things I'm going to be talking about will have political arguments in them, but they're likely to be being said by fictional characters in particular situations. And the arguments are there to make sense of the situation. The situation is not there to provide a vehicle for the argument. That's at least what I'm going to try to do, though I have a feeling probably along the way, I will find myself thinking that there is an argument at work. But let's see how we get on. And I'm really determined not to do it today, because the temptation is perhaps most strong with Shakespeare, for obvious reasons, to try and work out what Shakespeare think about this. Whose side was he on? What were his political commitments? And the reason it's so tempting is because Shakespeare is so famous. 
He is so ubiquitous. He's everywhere. He's everywhere, not just in British culture or even Western culture, in global culture. He's embedded in the English language. But also he's so mysterious. In many ways, he's so obscure. We don't know that much about Shakespeare. His life is clouded in mystery to the point that people still argue about who he really was. Was Shakespeare really Shakespeare? And most of the evidence for him, the man, is in the plays. And the plays are very political. Shakespeare, like everyone, I guess, but certainly he's no exception. He lived in an intensely political world at an intensely political time, the late 16th, early 17th century in England. This was an age of kings and queens, of court politics, of dynastic struggles, of rumours of invasions and actual invasions of terrorism, of insurrection and rebellion, and the endless struggle for legitimacy. Even kings and queens have to have people believe in them if they're going to stay in power. Heavy is the head that wears the crown. And Shakespeare's plays are about all of those things, particularly the history plays, particularly the tragedies. They are about kings and queens and court politics and dynastic struggles and rumours of insurrection and rebellion and all the twists and turns and the endless, endless, ceaseless struggle for legitimacy. I am king because, because what? Because I was born king? Really? So given how political it all is and given the real politics that lay behind Shakespeare's life, Shakespeare's world, it is very tempting to want to know whose side is he on? Is this play actually about Shakespeare and his queen, his king? Is he involved in court politics? Or at least is he saying something about the sort of censorship that he's subject to because of court politics? Is he maybe on the side of the people? Was he a popular playwright? I mean, this is popular entertainment at a time of popular tumult. Maybe secretly Shakespeare was with the people. Or maybe he wasn't, particularly as he got older, got more prosperous, became a landowner. Maybe he was on the side of the elite. Maybe actually he was sucking up to the people in power. Maybe he was an authoritarian. Maybe he was a conservative. I do get the impulse to know what Shakespeare thought, but you can't really get it from the plays. And both the impulse, but also the trap, is perhaps most present with the play that I'm talking about today, because it is perhaps the most political of Shakespeare's plays, Coriolanus written sometime between 1605 and 1608. So this is relatively late in Shakespeare's life and career. It's the last of his tragedies. It's the final tragedy. And one of the reasons it seems particularly amenable to that kind of what's the meaning behind the form, what did he actually think, political interpretation, is threefold. First of all, it's not actually about kings and queens and court politics and dynastic struggles, because this one, unlike all the plays about the kings and the queens and about the emperors and the empresses, the Henrys, the Julius Caesars, the would-be emperors, Antony and Cleopatra, this one is set in the early years of the Roman Republic. So it's a republic, not a monarchy. There is no king. They got rid of their kings. There is no king. There is not yet and won't be for a long, long time an emperor. This is a city-state a republic. So the struggle that's going on here is neither court nor dynastic. It's more raw than that. In some ways, it's more timeless than that. It is the struggle between the elite, the patricians in this case, the Roman Senate, the landed elite, and also the military elite. 
and the people, the masses, the plebs, as they were called, the plebeians. That conflict is central to Coriolanus. And so because it feels quite binary, and it isn't clouded by the question of kings and queens and the complexity of court politics and intrigue, maybe this is the play where Shakespeare, not least because he might be freer here. No one's going to read this play and think, is he talking about our king? Or was he talking about our queen? Because there aren't any. Maybe Shakespeare was freer in this play to say whose side he was on. Maybe. And secondly, this is the play that probably of all of them is most subject to endless repeated political interpretations in the way it's produced, because it looks like a play about military power, about elite rule, and about the endless struggle between the few and the many, those at the top of the state and the mass, the the menial part of the state, for power. That timeless quality means it's endlessly adaptable to different situations. The question of military rule, of elite rule, of popular resistance is ever-present and perhaps increasingly acutely present in modern politics, in 20th century politics. So Coriolanus is the play, more than any of the others, that gets staged in ways that reflect the political circumstances of the time and the place in which it's happening. In Nazi Germany, Coriolanus was very popular because it was the play that could be the vehicle for some kind of statement about the necessity of military rule, of strong leadership. After the war, the Americans in occupied Germany banned it on the grounds it was too dangerous. This was a a dangerous play. The implication being this play maybe was on the side of even seeking to legitimate a form of elite military rule. At the same time, because the play is also about popular resistance to that rule, in East Germany, Bertolt Brecht put on productions of Coriolanus, which emphasized the ways in which actually it's a play on the side of the people. The people do resist elite rule. They do, in the end, defeat their would-be tyrant, Coriolanus. A recent film version of Coriolanus, directed by starring the... English actor Rafe Fiennes, was released in 2011, and it was set in the recent Balkans, a sort of mythical Balkans, but recognisably the Balkans, Balkan War. This is politics about men in uniform, and men in uniform, and how you either allow or resist them when they seek to gain power, is a theme that cuts across 20th, 21st century politics. So you can do very political interpretations of Coriolanus, and it feels like it runs with the flow of the text. And thirdly, it is a play that has a lot of political arguments in it. The characters try and make their case, not in the veiled language of court intrigue, but with direct appeals across class divides. It looks like a play potentially about class, in which the elite, the patricians, the gentry make their case to the people and the people push back. And on both sides, it comes sometimes not quite as a manifesto, but certainly as a political commitment seeking to persuade the other side. So maybe these arguments, because they really are arguments, are Shakespeare's arguments, except they're not. They really aren't. They can't be read that way because Shakespeare isn't saying them. The characters in the play are saying them, and the characters in the play are saying them 
because the circumstances in which they find themselves require the argument, not because it's a good argument. I'm just going to give one example, perhaps the most celebrated example in the play. It's quite early on. There's a character called Menoneus, who is an ally of, a friend of Coriolanus. And just to be clear up front, Coriolanus, the central character at the start of the play, he's not called Coriolanus, he's called Martius. And he gets given the name Coriolanus because of a great military victory over the rival tribe that the Romans are fighting at this point called the Volscians. And at the stronghold of the Volscians called Corioli, Coriolanus gets a great victory. So he gets the name of the place that he won. And that's his his appellation, his, his honorific. I'm just going to call him Coriolanus throughout for simplicity. It gets too confusing otherwise. So Menoneus is a friend of the person who's going to be Coriolanus. But he's also, he's a patrician, he's on the side of the elite. And early on in the play, there's a quite a lot of back and forth between him and various representatives of the people, the plebs, the ordinary people. And it's an extremely tense time in Rome because people are hungry. There's not enough food. And the ordinary people are potentially on the brink of revolt because they believe that the patrician elite are hoarding the food, hoarding the corn. And the, the food needs to be distributed, and they are powerless to, to get the food. And Menenius tries to explain to the representatives of the people why they are wrong to think of his side, his class, the posh ones, as the enemy here, simply because they are holding on to the food. And he does it by way of an analogy of the body politic. There have been many analogies of the body politic throughout the history of political thinking. This one is a bit unusual. Normally, when people talk about the body politic, the idea is, and it's certainly true in this case, Menoneus wants to make this point too, to suggest that we're all in it together. We are a single body. So you can't take us apart. If you, one part of the body fights another part of the body, it's bad for everyone. And you can't chop bits off. You can't expel this bit of the body or that bit of the body because the body will die if you chop off the limbs or the head or whatever, rip out the heart. And normally in these analogies, the rulers or the elite, the people in power, are presented as essential to the function of the body because they are the head, the decision-making organ, maybe the soul, if it's a more spiritual version of this, the thing that, that gives it life and animation, maybe the heart, the thing that gives it courage. In this version, Menoneus says, we are the stomach of the state, or as some people call it, this is the belly politic analogy, not the body politic. We are the stomach. So it might look like we're holding on to the food in the same way that when someone eats, the food winds up in their stomach. We are the stomach. But anyone who understands how the body works knows that the stomach is there to distribute the food through the body. It passes through the stomach and it gives energy and life to the different parts of the body. And there is no other way for the food to get around. You can't directly give the food to the leg or the arm or even the head. It might go in at the head, but it has to pass through the stomach. We, the patricians, the senate, the elite, we hold the food because we are the stomach so that we can distribute it, not because we're greedy. The stomach isn't greedy. It's just doing its job. And as Menoneus says, the stomach isn't left with the food. Once the food has passed out of the stomach, his word for it is the stomach is left with the chaff, the rubbish. We are just the conduit through which the life of the state flows. That's Menoneus's argument. So you can't attack us. It'd be like attacking your own stomachs for having food in them you would die that way. You need the stomach to enjoy the benefits of the food. So that's the patrician argument. 
against the people. Don't rebel. Don't fight back. Don't even complain that you're hungry because you might be hungry now, but without us, you would actually die of starvation. Is that what Shakespeare thought? It seems very unlikely it's what Shakespeare thought because if you read the play, if you watch the play, it becomes pretty clear that Shakespeare has put this argument in the mouth of Menenius, designed to be a bad argument. This is not meant to be persuasive. It's an idiotic argument. It doesn't work. This analogy doesn't work. The people are starving, and Menenius says to them, don't worry about the fact that you're starving. Don't attack us. Yes, we're holding on to the food, but only to pass it on to you because it's going to be digested by us and somehow then it will end up with you. The people want actual food. It can't be digested by anyone else. And as the argument progresses, it becomes more and more absurd. And there are two signals of that. One is because the representatives of the people are completely unpersuaded by it. They call it out for the rubbish it is. Menenius doesn't make a more persuasive version of the argument. He just starts abusing them. And he says, we're the stomach, you're the big toe of the state, you're nothing. And he also says to them, and this is a deliberately bad pun, to let the audience know, you can't take this seriously. He says, I want you to go away and digest my argument. Which isn't just a offensive, it's ridiculous. The people want food. And Menenius is saying, well, yes, we have the food. But what I'm going to give you instead of the food is a set of words to persuade you that actually, you don't need the food now. And what I'm going to give you is the words to digest in place of the food. Happy with that? No, they want the food. And it doesn't end with either side winning this argument, they just get more and more abusive. It ends when Coriolanus appears on the scene and says to Menenius, oh, for God's sake, shut up. Stop trying to persuade these people of this. It's beneath us trying to engage them in rhetorical justifications for what we do. We are the elite. We do what we do. We protect them. We look after them. We fight for them. And they should just accept it. Once we get into the business of trying to justify ourselves through words, we're playing their game. That's not our game. We don't lower ourselves to justify ourselves to these people. And Menenius exists in this play to provide a contrast with Coriolanus because Coriolanus won't do that. He won't even offer any kind of political justification for his power. His power is meant to speak for itself, particularly through military prowess, courage, the wounds that he's accumulated, military victory. Compared to Coriolanus, Menenius is a politician. He's not a very good politician but he's trying to make the case. He doesn't just tell the, the people to get lost. He tries and fails to come up with an argument for them. Yet, compared to the people that we're going to meet, who are the elected representatives of the people, the tribunes, two characters called Sicinius and Brutus, who are cynical and devious and genuinely manipulative and skillful in their way with how they use words. Menenius is not a politician at all. Compared to Coriolanus, he's a politician. Compared to the actual politicians, he's just an amateur fool. He can't, he can't do it. He doesn't know how to do it. He doesn't know how to use words. Coriolanus refuses to use words. The tribunes know how to use words. And between them is this character who is neither one thing nor the other. So the temptation here is to think, right, so Menenius is a kind of holding character between the people who are the central struggle, struggling agents in this story 
Coriolanus, all action, no words. The tribunes, the representatives of the plebs, all words and no action. And Coriolanus, when he deigns to speak to them, one of the charges he throws at them is, you don't do anything, you people. You're basically, you are just politicians. I fight, you talk. I've got nothing to say to you because you have nothing to back your words up with. So the temptation is to think Menenius is eventually or quite quickly irrelevant to the central struggle. And in the central struggle, you do have to pick a side. In this play, you are being presented with these two alternative versions of what Rome is or what politics is. Elite, military, aristocratic rule, popular, devious, in this case, resistance. But it isn't like that, and it's not as simple as that, partly because a lot of the action in the play takes place between those two poles. It's not a direct confrontation. Rarely does Coriolanus and his plebeian enemies, rarely do they come into conflict directly. Most of it is mediated by other characters, not just Menenius, but also because Coriolanus, the character himself, is not just engaged in a single fight against his working class, plebeian, whatever you want to call them, even democratic enemies. He fights two kinds of enemies throughout this play. And the play is about essentially the tragedy of Coriolanus being unable to fight them both at the same time. That is his tragedy in the sense that he is trapped because he can win one battle, but it requires that he loses the other, or he can win the other battle but that means he's going to lose the first one. So who are these two enemies? So one lot are just the rival tribes that the Romans fight against. So in this case, it's it's a tribe called the Volscians. And this is really local politics. This is Rome, not as a world conquering power, but trying to establish a foothold on the mainland of Italy. The people that they're fighting against, I think they were sort of 10 or 15 miles away. So this is neighbor to neighbor war. These people are very like each other. And in this contest where Coriolanus's job as the great warrior hero is to go out and defend Rome against the, the next tribe along and basically kill them, he's a killing machine. As he's called in the play, he's a thing of blood. And in a lot of productions of Coriolanus, he's covered in blood the whole time or most of the time. He's a killing machine who kills rival tribes. That's his job. But those enemies are a kind of mirror of him they are like him. So it's soldiers fighting soldiers. In this case, the general of the Volscians is a character called Ophidius, who is Coriolanus's great rival, and not his equal, because every time they meet in battle, Coriolanus beats him, because Coriolanus is the ultimate warrior champion. He never quite manages to kill him, but he humiliates him. Nonetheless, they are very like each other. They are similar characters doing similar things, trying to communicate through force of arms. And as many people have noted about this play, in this relationship, Coriolanus and his mortal enemy, the man he's meant to kill, that relationship is quite close to love in the sense that it's clearly sexual. It's not just homoerotic. Coriolanus thinks about the man that he wants to kill as though he were his lover. I'll just give one example. Late on in the play, he recounts the kind of dreams that he has about Ophidius, this man that he keeps nearly killing and not quite killing. And he says, in his dreams, I quote, we have been down together, unbuckling helms, fisting each other's throats. 
that's the relationship he dreams of with Ophidius. And you don't need a degree in psychoanalytical literary theory to know what he's talking about there. This is sex and death as being pressed right up against each other in the mirror so that you almost can't tell which is which. Coriolanus versus Ophidius, the Romans versus the Volscians, these are people fighting mirror images of themselves. They are fighting themselves. And one of the reasons that Coriolanus loves Ophidius is that he is in love with himself, the mirror of himself. The relationship with his other enemies, who are the people of Rome, the plebs, is nothing like that. They aren't the mirror of Coriolanus. They are the inversion of Coriolanus. They are the upside-down version. He doesn't see himself in them. He sees the opposite of himself in them. So he is action, not words. They are words, not action. He is alone. They are many. Their representatives speak for the mass. And he has all these terms for the masses, the musty, fusty masses. They lack action. They lack the ability to act. They can only speak through their representatives. And there's a lot of play with body politic language where the tribunes are described as the tongues of the people. And then at one point, Coriolanus says, why don't you deal with their teeth? He hates them. He hates Ophidius too, but he loves him as well. He just hates the plebs because they are the opposite of him. His problem is that if he defeats one of these enemies, he falls into the hands of the other. So he goes out and defeats the Volscians, which makes him a hero of Rome, which means he is now a part of Rome. After all, he's been fighting the Volscians, not just for his own sake, but to defend his city. And his city is in part its people. So when he comes back, he has done it for them. However much he might want to think they are nothing to do with him, they have a claim on him because he has defeated their enemy. And if he rejects them, as he does, and I'll do the plot in a second, if he rejects the people of Rome, the only place for him to go is into the hands of their enemies. He has to go over to the other side. If he wins one of these contests, he's trapped by the other. If he escapes that trap, he falls into the trap of the contest that he's just won. And that is his tragedy. So let me just try and describe how it happens. This is the sequence, greatly condensed. In this play, Rome is in a febrile state because the people are starving and there's a lot of class tension. But then it emerges that the Volscians are coming again and a battle has to be fought. And Rome unites, as it always does when it's under threat, and it calls for its hero, Coriolanus, Martius, becomes Coriolanus, go and defeat these people. Everyone wants it, and he does what he's asked to do. He is a killing machine. He kills a lot of them, and he comes back wounded, heroic triumphant. And he needs his reward for what he's done. And the reward for this is understood to be anointed consul, the, the ultimate power position in the Roman Republic, although it's in theory balanced, but the consul is at the top, to become a consul. And it will be by acclamation. I mean, he is the, he's the saviour of the state. There's, there's no competitor. There's no rival for this role. It's Coriolanus. It's our, it's our god. All they ask of him is that he ask for it. That's all he has to do. It's just, it's there for him, this, this ultimate triumph, to conquer Rome as well as Rome's enemies. He just has to ask for it. And he has to ask the people, because the people are part of Rome. That is the minimal hold they have over him. And they will give it to him. It's completely clear they will give it to him. They, they 
worship him because he saved them. But he can't ask for it. And the reason he can't ask for it is he can't lower himself even to that level, never mind to the level of making a political argument using a metaphor of the body politic, merely showing them that he needs their acclamation is too much for him. He tries, and the words stick in his throat. They say to him, all you have to do is show them your wounds. He is so aloof. He is so, in his own mind, removed from all of that. Even the act of taking his wounds and using them as evidence of his loyalty to the state makes him sick. He can't do it. The words stick in his throat, and then the real words come out. And he expresses his contempt for the people. When goaded, and he is goaded by the tribunes, they spot the way they can get him because they don't want him to be consul. In fact, they think this man is a danger to the people of Rome because he is a would-be tyrant. They use his inability even to ask to persuade the people that he has contempt for them because he does. At one point, Coriolanus says, the only way I want to communicate with the masses is for them to see who they really are by looking at my face. Because if they look at my face, they will see my disdain for them. And my disdain for them is justified. They are the plebs. So I want them to know who they are by communicating with me simply by recognizing I will have nothing to do with them. And the tribunes turn that attitude into evidence of the fact that this man cannot be trusted an inch, and he is exiled. And when he is exiled, and there's nothing he can do about being exiled because he is just one man among all the others. He goes over to the other side. So he goes over to the Volscians and he says, we will get our revenge now. I will lead you against Rome. And because he's the killing machine, and when he picks up his sword, no one can resist, the tables are turned. And now Rome is on the back foot. Indeed, Rome faces the prospect of ruin because Coriolanus comes at the head of a Volscian army. And he's about to sack Rome. He is about to wreak his revenge on the Roman people and particularly on their representatives, the tribunes, who are not going to last long if Coriolanus comes back into the city. But he can't do it. So having moved from one enemy to the other enemy, he's now trapped in a different way because his family, his mother, his wife, his son, come to see him at the gates of Rome and they beg him, not to destroy the city, because in destroying the city, he will destroy them. And they are extensions of him. They are, in a way, part of his body. His son is an extension of his body. In this account, he and his wife are joined together as a single body. He is an extension of his mother's body. They are all, within the body politic, a much more coherent body. He can't kill them, essentially, without destroying himself. So then what can he do? Now he's really trapped. The only thing he can do is try and negotiate a peace. The only way out for him is having taken the Volskins back to the gates of Rome to say to both sides, as the one person who can defeat both sides, I can bring you together enough of this fighting. Let's create a peace and I will be the person who does it. But he can't do that either because he's no politician. He has no idea how to go about doing that. Soldiers can't make peace. Politicians can make peace. Soldiers make war. Politicians make peace. Some soldier politicians managed to do it, but Coriolanus is nothing like a soldier politician. And the Volskians, spotting that having promised them victory over Rome, he's now compromising, see him as a traitor, and they kill him. And that's the tragedy. There is no way out. It's a tragedy. 
In these tragedies, the convention is that the central character has a fatal flaw. So what is Coriolanus's fatal flaw that means that he's trapped in this way? And the conventional answer for this play is that it's pride. He's too proud. He, he can't lower himself even to the minimal amount required to get the people who worship him to feel like he's heard them, heard their worship. He can't even do that. He's too aloof to debase himself in any way, which means he is doomed. If he's going to fight a war for Rome and yet convey to the people of Rome he has nothing but contempt for them, in the end, they will reject him. And once rejected, he has nowhere to go except to their enemies. And once he's in the hands of their enemies, he's an enemy of Rome, and that will be ruined because his family are still in Rome. It's a tragedy. But it's one of those plays, I think it's probably true of a lot of Shakespeare's plays, that has a meta element in it, in that there's a certain amount of discussion in the play about the characteristics of the characters in the play. And later on, Phidias has a speech in which he asks himself, and therefore the audience, what is the flaw with this guy? What's wrong with him? And he says, well, clearly one of the things that's wrong with him is he's too proud. And he says that's, that's his flaw. But that's not the only thing that's wrong with him. He's more complicated than that. He's not just a prideful man. He has other things going on. Indeed, he has other flaws. So he says the second thing that's wrong with Coriolanus is he lacks political judgment. He's actually, in his pride, he says, I don't want to do politics, but he's drawn into politics. It's almost impossible to avoid it in his position. And then he does it really badly, as badly as Menenius, maybe even worse than Menenius, because he can't judge the moment. He doesn't understand about the moment. And then his third problem is that he is too much, Ophidius says, he's too much one thing. He's, he's too true to himself. He, he finds it really hard to be two-faced or multifaceted, whatever you want to call it, the thing that you need to be to survive in the world. He gets trapped in a version of himself where he thinks he has to be consistent all the way through. And there's an irony even in that. Here's a speech where he says, there are three things wrong with this guy, pride, lack of political judgment, and the fact that he's only one thing which is one of three things that's wrong with him. So he's clearly not only one. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. He is complicated, Coriolanus, for all his apparent, brutal, killing machine, thing of blood, simplicity. One part of that complication, part of the puzzle with this play is 
the plot has to be motivated by the fact that Coriolanus has contempt for the people of Rome. He says, I'm just a soldier. I am just a killer. That's what I am. I don't do politics. But he wants to be consul. Because he could, after all, say, well, I don't want to be consul. I don't want your rewards. You don't, I don't even want to be called Coriolanus. I don't want any of it. Some soldiers, when they come back from the wars, however triumphant they've been, don't try and become head of state. They go back to their farms or whatever. It's not just it's a possibility. In Rome, it's a thing that people do, but not Coriolanus. Actually, he does want that power as well. He wants it all, but he can't do the thing that's required to have it all. Part of the reason he wants it all is because of his mother, who is a terrifying character, Volumnia. She raised him to be the killing machine. She has indoctrinated him from a young age with the belief that all that matters in life is your reputation for nobility and valor. And that can only really be proved on the battlefield. So soldiering is everything. Victory is everything. And she wants him to be wounded. When he comes back and from one of these battles and the report is, your son's been wounded, she goes, thank God. Not, thank God he's wounded, not dead, but thank God he's wounded and not not wounded. Thank God he's bleeding. I mean, it'd be awful if he came back and he wasn't bleeding. And when Coriolanus' wife says to her, but he could have died, you know, like this is a dangerous business. She goes, that would be fine. I'm completely fine with him dying. She says, if he died, in Shakespeare's language, his report would be my issue, meaning his reputation would then be my son. That's what I'd love. I'd love, it's fine. I don't mind if it's him or his reputation. The thing I couldn't love is him without his reputation. But she's the one who then drives him on and says, and you must now become consul. You know, it has to be greatness followed by greatness. You must take your reward. And he complains, I can't do it because they're going to make me not beg, but suck up to them a bit. And I can't do it. You've taught me to disdain them. And now you want me to ask them for something. And she goes, come on, it's just a small thing. And it'll be worth it. Because when you have that power, then you really can disdain them. Once you're consul, you've got to do the tiny bit of politics that will get you there. And he can't do it. He just can't do it. In the end, one of the things that he rebels against is his own mother, who thinks it ought to be possible to transfer what makes Coriolanus undefeatable on the battlefield into politics. But you can't, and he can't. And it's because she's taught him when he's fighting to be heedless of anything but his honour. And so in politics, he can't drop that heedlessness. He is heedless again. He is reckless again. He tells the people what he really thinks of them. And it leads to the great confrontation, the point in the play where the two sides within Rome do square up. Having failed to ask for the consulship, the tribunes spot their moment, which they have effectively engineered. They've contrived it. They know Coriolanus is going to fall into this trap. This is their chance to persuade the people that this man is a danger to them. He is actually their enemy because he has contempt for them and that they should expel him. And so he's hauled before a tribunal. He can't defend himself because he's incapable of it. He can't do the politic thing and ask for forgiveness. And so they expel him. And in response, he says in a three-word cry, which are the three words that electrify the whole play forwards and backwards. And it's right in the middle of the play when Coriolanus is banished from the city of Rome. He turns to the people who have banished him and he says, I quote, I banish you. That is, you don't get to throw me out. 
I throw you out. You don't get to reject me. I reject you. No one rejects me. No one tells me what to do. No one tells me where to go. But I am telling you where to go. I am pushing you away from me. And he knows that means he has to leave Rome. There's no way of staying in Rome and rejecting Rome. There's no way of banishing Rome from inside Rome. So he says, I'm going to leave you because effectively, he doesn't say this explicitly, I am the body politic. I am the only thing here that is entire and intact and whole. At various points in the play, he calls the tribunes fragments or representatives of the fragments, the unincorporate body, the bits and pieces of the state. Everything else is fragmentary, incoherent. It doesn't hang together. Only Coriolanus, his body, his courage. That's the only thing that holds together. So if something has to be rejected from the body politic, his body will reject everything else. But like Menenius's body politic image earlier, it's bullshit. It just doesn't make sense. It's a cry. It's a magnificent, the haughtiest cry of political pain in all literature. I banish you. And it's bullshit because he says, so I'm going to go off and lead a solitary life. I am the world entire to myself. I can be true to myself by being just myself alone. But he doesn't. Because you can't be Coriolanus on your own. You have to have armies to lead. You have to have people to fight. You have to have a political world to inhabit. Coriolanus as hermit just doesn't make any sense. So he goes off and joins the enemy. He joins the Volskians. He can't be the world entire. He needs a body to hook onto. And he hooks onto the body of his enemies, which means in the end, he leads them against his family. And he's not a world to himself. When his family come to see him at the gates of Rome and they say to him, don't do this, and that's more or less all they say, as they're on their way, as he knows they're coming, he says in an aside, this isn't going to work. I'm, I, I, I am going to resist these people. And he says, I quote, I will be the author of myself and have no other kin. Or rather, he says, I will act as a man who is the author of himself and have no other kin. That is, I have no family. I I have nothing that comes out of me that isn't part of me and inside me. And the second he sees them, he knows he can't do it. He knows that it's a lie. And the way he characterizes that it's a lie is he says, I'm like an actor and I have forgot my part and I am out. I'm like an actor who's forgotten his lines. I can't play this part. I can't play the part of being authentically myself. The authenticity for which he strives is actually just a contrivance. It's just another contrivance. And he realizes he lacks the words for it. He lacks the lines. He, he's forgotten his words. And he's ruined. At that point, he's ruined. Everything that follows from that is just the tragedy unfolding. I banish you turns out to be bullshit. The other reason it, it, this play can't just be summarized as it's about Coriolanus, the tragic hero who had too much pride, is everyone in it has too much pride. I mean, there, there's never been a play with more people full of pride. It's dripping off the walls. They all have it. His mother is the most prideful person imaginable. She's haughty, disdainful. She's probably more disdainful than Coriolanus is. She is unbelievably aloof, and yet, unlike Coriolanus, she also is so prideful 
that she thinks she can politically manipulate any situation, and she's wrong. Aphidius is an incredibly prideful man. He is haunted by the fact that Coriolanus keeps beating him, his his brother, his lover, whatever it is. This man who is like him is better than him. He can't bear it. It drives him mad. When Coriolanus comes over to his side, he gets the thing he's always wanted. This man, the killing machine, he can use him to conquer Rome. And that's the thing that will fulfill him. He can lead the Volscians against their mortal enemies, the Romans. But he can only do it with his mortal enemy, which is intolerable to him. He can't bear that either. And he gets more and more angry and upset that it's Coriolanus who's leading the Volscians against the Romans. And when he gets his opportunity at the end of the play to kill Coriolanus, he takes it, doesn't even think about it. This man has to die all the way along. He knows this man has to die because he has wounded his pride. Menenius is proud, the the friend who thinks that he can persuade people. He can't persuade the plebs of anything. But nor can he persuade Coriolanus. So the play begins with Menenius making a bad argument. It ends with him making a bad argument before Coriolanus's family beg him not to sack Rome. Menenius says, look, this I know this guy. He, he's one of us. I've known him for a long time. And he, more to the point, he knows me. So I will go and persuade him. He won't be able to resist my pleas not to destroy Rome. He goes and Coriolanus can resist him without even having to think about it. Nothing, Menenius says, has any impact on Coriolanus. He has nothing to say. He is the empty vessel in this play. The tribunes are full of pride. The tribunes who are devious politicians also think that they know best. They are wishful, apart from anything else. So they think they are the master manipulators, and they think they trap Coriolanus. They they draw him into being unspeakably contemptuous to the people so that they can say to the people, look, this is what this man is. They can actually give the people what Coriolanus says he wants to give to the people, which is a clear view of his disdain for them. And they use that to persuade the people to reject him. And when Coriolanus is banished, they don't care that he says, I banished you, because they know it's bullshit. He's he's got nothing. They are many and he is one. He can go and be a hermit, he can go and do what he likes. They win, he loses. It's their triumph. And then when they hear in Act 4 and Act 5 that this man that they have banished is coming back at the head of their enemies and their enemy's army to destroy them, their response is, it's not true. It's, it, it just can't be true. Like we, We're the people who set this scene up. Like We're the ones who control this situation. We're the politicians. He's not going to be leading the enemy against us. And they're told, no, he's coming and he's laying waste to Roman farms. He's killing Roman families and he's coming for you. And they go, no, he's not. I mean, because that wouldn't make sense, right? That would That would mean we'd won, but actually we'd lost. But that's not how it works because we're the people who end up on top. I mean, we're not, you know, we're the plebs, right? But no one gets the better of us in the end. And Shakespeare, there is mockery of of these men and their vanity, their pride, their stupidity, essentially. He puts into the mouth of Menenaeus the other great cry of pain in this play, the, the great political shriek. When the tribunes say to Menenius, we don't buy your arguments, you're always talking rubbish. And anyway, like no one takes you seriously. You're, a, you're an arrogant man, you're a vain man, you're a foolish man, whatever. Menenius says to them, oh my God, you know, like you're those things. 
those things that you say I am, that's what you are. You say I'm arrogant, you're arrogant. You say that I'm full of puffed up pride, you're full of puffed up pride. And he says to them, this is the great cry, oh, that you could turn your eyes toward the napes of your necks and make but an interior survey of your good selves, i.e., God, I wish you could see yourself like other people see you. They see through you. You're just looking out from inside your stupid little heads and you see me as the vain, arrogant one. Oh my God, that's who you are. God, I wish you could see yourselves as I see you. God, I wish you could see yourselves as everyone sees you. But they don't. Not only do they not do it when Menenius tells them to do it, they don't do it at any point in the play. They don't lose. They they do win. Coriolanus ends up dead. He doesn't come for them. If he'd got into the city, he would have cut their throats. But in the end, the Volskians cut his throat, and the tribunes live to fight another day. And their wishful thinking goes on, and Shakespeare allows that. Not because he's on the side of the tribunes, not because he's on anyone's side, but because he knows that these these cries of pain, these desires for it to make sense. I want I want people to see you for who you are. I want the essence to come through. I want politics to make sense because people are as they should be seen and they are seen as they are. It doesn't happen. You never get there. In the end, it's all a charade. It's all an act. The only person probably that you can say is not full of pride is Coriolanus's wife, Virgilia who is a a fairly meek and in some ways minor character in this play. She seems terrified, understandably, of her mother-in-law and terrified, understandably, of her husband and possibly even terrified of her infant son who's being brought up to be like a mini-me Coriolanus, a little mini killing machine. She joins them when they go to beg him not to take his revenge on Rome. She hasn't got much to say, and and she does the thing in the end that Coriolanus always aspires to do but never manages, which is simply to communicate through action. She has almost no words, but she, and it has to be said, his mother and his son, kneel before him. And in the act of kneeling before him, they break him. He can't go on once they've kneeled before him. And she, because Virgilia, the wife, because she, she doesn't really have a side to her, there is a integrity to that. She maybe is the one person who is intact in this play in the sense that her actions and her words, or in this case, her absence of words, cohere. But the tribunes win and she loses. So at the end of the play, they have got their enemy dead and she's lost her husband. Nobody wins. It's a tragedy. So what does it all mean? I'm not going to say there's a political message here because there isn't a political message in that sense it's about it's about what it is to live in a political world about which there can't be a message there can only be a description it's definitely as i think is probably true of all shakespeare show not tell but one of the things that this play is about as so much of shakespeare is the theatricality of life this is a theatrical production a staged account of the way in which life itself, public life, but also many aspects of private life, insofar as such a thing existed in, certainly in Republican Rome, it was a remote idea. But life itself 
is a production of that kind. It involves characters playing parts. And in this play, as in other Shakespeare plays, he does that meta thing of having characters in a play talk about what it is to be a character in a play. I have forgot my part and I am out, is what Coriolanus says not long before he dies. It is a performance. It's a performance about the performativity of political life, which sounds awful and deeply off-putting, and yet the genius of Shakespeare, unparalleled in the history of writing about anything, is that he makes this meta-theatrical version of theatricality seem natural. So even when these characters are doing it, it doesn't feel like that itself is a contrivance. It's part of who they are, which makes it both moving and baffling. But there probably is, because this is the most political of his plays, a political, I don't know what the word I want here is, lesson, moral, hint of something here, which is that to be a character in life or on the stage is to be a combination of performance and essence. Those two things have to go together to make a character. It can't just be performance, nothing behind it. It can't just be essence because the only way you get to see the essence is through the performance. There's there's no way to access the essence of a person except through how they appear. But there are various ways in which the relationship between performance and essence can come undone. So it comes undone with Coriolanus, the man, because he wants to bring them together. He wants to make the performance reflective of the essence, and it can't be done. If you collapse them into each other, in the end, you end up trapped. You are unable to function in a world that requires some distance between essence and performance. When Ophidius says he can only be one thing, he's kind of saying the only part he can play is the man who's not capable of playing parts, which is why he's doomed. In the case of the tribunes, the gap is too wide. They are playing with words because they think that words can manipulate any situation to produce the outcome they want. And it doesn't really matter who they are. They are, to use a word that Shakespeare would be familiar with, but is completely anachronistic in relation to what was actually going on in Republican Rome. They are the Machiavellian characters. They are the manipulators. But there is a a form of manipulation where you, you lose touch with your essence. And though they survive, they survive both as objects of ridicule, certainly for the audience, I think. But also they survive in a way that makes it clear their own survival is not in their hands. So maybe they won this one, but they can't conclude from it that they were the masters of the situation because they were all performance and no essence. But also in this play, I think there's that suggestion that all of us in in political life, in our personal lives, which have politics of a kind in them, in how we function among other human beings. We're all tempted to those great cries of pain where we want to get to the essence. We want to assert our essential character or our essential qualities against a world that seems so fake and so determined to see us not as we are, but as what they imagine us to be. So the two great cries of pain, I banish you, And though it's a bit more Shakespearean, oh, that you could turn your eyes toward the napes of your necks, i.e., oh, that you could just see yourselves as I see you. You could see yourselves who you really are because you are self-deceived, you bastards. 
you manipulative bastards. Can't you see that you're manipulative bastards? Those two cries of pain are universal. They're everywhere in a political world. They're everywhere in our world. What is Twitter when it's not people sucking up to each other, but people screaming at each other, I banish you. You don't banish me. You don't throw me out of your tribe. I throw you out of my tribe. And if my tribe is a tribe of one, so what? I'm me. You don't get to tell me who I am. And God, I wish you could see yourselves for who you are. I'm going to retweet all these other people who have seen through you. So you get to see who you are. And the response from the people on the other end is, you don't get to tell me who I am. I banish you. Those are the great cries of political pain, because the world of politics is the world in which there is no essence without performance. So you can't be essentially yourself. You just can't. But the desire is always there. And the great temptation that I think this play, it's not warning against because it's not a moral play and it doesn't have a moral, but it's a tragedy, so it's meant to improve us in some way. The great temptation I think this play is warning against is the feeling that if we can just get to scream, I banish you at our enemies, or if we can just take the manipulative bastards and shout at them, God, you should see how you look to me because that's who you really are. We're being true to ourselves. That's, there's something essential in those those great shrieks of pain, of of political rage and angst and frustration. It's it's a primal cry of what's buried deep inside us. So that when we do it, when we say, "You don't banish me, I banish you," we are, whatever the costs, at least being true to ourselves. And I think. Something that this play suggests is that when we scream, I banish you, we're not being true to ourselves. We are collapsing in on ourselves. Next week in this series, I'm going to be talking about Gulliver's Travels by Jonathan Swift. And coming up, Schiller's Maria Stewart, Turgenev's Fathers and Sons. This month, we're doing the first four episodes of this series. It's a 12-part series in total. The rest of it will be coming out over the summer because we've got other series coming up too. And in March, twice a week, I'm going to be bringing you, with Gary Gerstle, a history of the ideas behind American presidential elections from 1800 to 2024. The big elections in between, did ideas shape them? Did they change the world of ideas? And what does it mean for American politics today? There's lots of other exciting things coming up on Past, Present, Future. We're going to have series about the history of bad ideas. Leia Ippi and I are going to be talking about the history of freedom. We're going to be launching a newsletter to go with these podcasts and specifically guides to these series, to things you can read, things you can watch, writing from me and other contributors. We're going to give you a lot more information about all of this and how you can join in. In the meantime, as always, do please follow us on Twitter, even though Twitter is where people banish each other, at PPF Ideas. And please join us, not just next week, but for everything that's coming up. This has been Past, Present, Future, brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books.
The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.